Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. John is a Senior Fellow for Strategic and Defence Studies at ANU and is a former Director of Joint Intelligent Operations at Headquarters Joint Operations Command. He is also the author of the second volume in the official history of the ASIO protest years and those two former volumes are available for signing by David and John in the foyer afterwards as well. Dr Rhys Crawley works at the Australian War Memorial where he is an author of the official history of Australian military operations in Afghanistan. Prior to this, while working in all three volumes of the official history of ASIO, he was a research fellow of the Strategic and Defence Studies here at the ANU. It gives us great pleasure to welcome John Blaxland and Rhys Crawley tonight. Thank you. Yeah, well, uh, folks, thank you very much for coming tonight. It's a great honour and a privilege uh, uh, to speak to you about what is a pretty exciting project. Uh, we have been honoured and delighted to be part of this. Uh, it's made our lives pretty darn fascinating the last few years. Um, and I want to just touch briefly on a couple of aspects. Um, what we, and Colin, thank you for going over the, the, the scope broadly about uh, the, the project, the three-volume project. It was Reese really did a lot of the research for all three volumes. So he's uh, you know, he's got more information in his head than you could poke a stick at. Um, and uh, David obviously did volume one, I did volume two, uh, and, but David's really been the, the editor of the, all three volumes. So uh, we very much owe a debt of gratitude to David for the fantastic work he did in, in mentoring Reese and I and in overseeing the whole project. Um, Lisa McKibben, who's here tonight as well, did a fantastic job helping us uh, with the research of the last volume especially. Um, I want to pay tribute to the, uh, the advisory committee, Dr Jeff Gallup uh, and the late Jim Carlton especially, for their sage counsel and advice. Having them on the panel of the advisory committee was really very helpful for us to, to be able to use them in, in our engagement with ASIO as well. Uh, and of course the Directors General of Security, successive Directors General of Security, Paul O'Sullivan, uh, David Irvine and Duncan Lewis, their support has been absolutely uh, critical. Uh, and of course, the Deputy Director General, uh, Kerry Hartland, who really has been very, very supportive and the staff beneath that. Uh, now, I want to just hand over to Reese. Reese is going to work us, walk us through some of the aspects of the research and writing and just recap some of the high points of Volume 1. Thanks, John. Uh, as David reminded me, this is a bit of a dog and pony show. Uh, I'm not sure who's the dog and who's the pony, but John's, <laughs> gonna, John's going to be doing most of the talking. <laughs> Um, a couple of words, I guess, on the research and writing. There were some um, conditions that Professor David Horner put in place before the project even began. Um, those of you who attended uh, David's talk a couple of years ago may have heard this already, but we were to be given unrestricted access. So we were independent academics. ASIO wanted this history written. Um, it uh, put it out to tender the ANU, and Professor David Horner won that tender process. 
that employed John and I, but we were to have unrestricted access to all of ASIO's files. So we had to get security clearances um, to, to go in and look at unredacted files. So if you go to the National Archives today, order an ASIO file, you'll get it, it'll have blacked out bits in it. We went to the originals, we didn't look at the blacked out bits. Through that process and the three volumes, we looked at a, a bit over six and a half thousand files. So you know, this sort of thick, millions of pages, and from that wrote three pretty chunky uh, official history volumes. Many of those files we looked at, ASIO didn't even know existed anymore. They'd sat dormant, hadn't been used since the cases closed decades before. So often we were the first ones uh, to look at those documents in a very long time. We also really benefited from being able to do interviews with uh, former ASIO officers. Uh, over 100 interviews would be my guess, some multiple times. Uh, and that allowed us to get our heads um, and try and, th try and think like an ASIO officer thought about that, that problem. And often that, that's a bit quirky for someone who isn't an ASIO officer, but it was important for us to get our minds around how they were thinking, why they were tackling a problem the way they were, which could be completely different from the way we might uh, address a problem. So we really benefited from that. And I must say, I, I did quite a lot of interviews and, and I was amazed at the recall of these people. We were interviewing people who joined the organisation in 1949 and could remember licence plates and dates and names. And this, this is really phenomenal. Um, what impressed me most um, was how serious they took the privilege of the fact they had sort of these really special powers, invasive techniques that most people don't, and they knew that they had to, to um, not abuse those powers, uh, and, and it was a, a really serious position. The history, as I said, was written from, um, from non-redacted files, so our penultimate draft was a top secret document. Um, it still remains in ASIO, it names people, it has full file references, the volume you've got, you'll see the footnotes um, often are, are, are incomplete or just say ASIO files, and that's been done for security purposes. So we went through a clearance process um, where national security issues were either pixelated, sometimes removed um, after, after a fight, um, mainly by John. Uh, I'd, get, I'd just get too worked up, I think. So it's good to have John there um, and, and take the reins on that. Um, but they didn't, um, they didn't remove any of, of our conclusions, any of those um, criticisms we made of, of ASIO. So uh, it was a good fun process um, and, and we were able to, to maintain our integrity through that um, by really pushing back where, where we thought they were pushing too far. Quick recap of volume one. Uh, as Colin said, won the Prime Minister's uh, Prize for History uh, and the top prize for intelligence history in the UK. Um, and written by uh, Australia's foremost military historian and two times official historian, um, Professor David Horner. Um, it really looked at those toddler years of ASIO um, and, and of course the, 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 uh, the reasoning behind ASIO coming into existence, um, the top secret Venona operation and what that showed, an existence of, of a spy network in the Department of External Affairs. And then ASIO's first few years doing what they called the case, trying to find out who those people were that were passing information to the Soviets, uh, Soviet embassy in Canberra that was getting back to Moscow. So really focused on that. Of course, the defining moment of that period is the Petrov defection, the 1954 defection of, of, of uh, Vladimir and Evdokia Petrov pictured there. Um, and, and David was able to tell that story from an ASIO perspective, which was different from the story that was out there in, in, in many very good books on the topic. 
The, key three th the three key themes throughout that book, and actually that run through most of the series, are ASIO's work in counter sub countering subversion, mainly the Communist Party of Australia and how they um, infiltrated the Communist Party, technical operations, agents, and that's really well told, and countering espionage, which was mainly against the Soviets and the Soviet bloc um, um, uh, representatives here. And then some protective security, uh, which is actually where it cops most of the flack um, so things like security vetting, screening immigrants, and um, the less sexy uh, protective security of, of important buildings. Um, so that's it for volume one. It's a, it a great book. Please buy it. Uh, David's, David's certainly a better writer than the two of us. Um, and John will now discuss volumes uh, two and three. Thank you, Rhys. Yeah, no, it is a cracker of a read. I, I actually personally think it's David Horner's best book. Uh, and he has written some crackers before that. Um, Volume two, this one really, this is kind of, uh, this is when ASIO has a bit of a low point. Uh, you know, this is when the baby boomer generation comes along and ASIO kind of doesn't quite keep pace with what's happening socially. Uh, the, the, the Vietnam War challenges the organisation uh, in terms of its resources and conceptually it's pushing the envelope as, as the Communist Party starts to unravel. We had the, the, the Hungarian uprising in 1956, we have the Prague Spring in 1968, and people just lose faith in the Communist Party. The idea of the Communist Party is, just, is really tarnished by what the Soviets do in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, and we see the, the, just the, the wind goes out of the sails of the Communist Party. You see a rump uh, remaining with the Communist Party, but you see a splintering of the Communist Party with the Communist Party Marxist-Leninist, the Socialist Party of Australia, and various Trotskyite tendencies, if you like, uh, emerging. Um, and ASIO is trying to track all of this while things are unravelling. But of course, countering espionage remains pivotal and remains the most important resourcing-wise for the organisation while they're trying to counter this perception of subversion, which is politically quite toxic and, of course, is, is addressed uh, in, a, in a different way in the next, gen, in next volume. This is, of course, the Whitlam years when Lionel Murphy, the Attorney General, goes and conducts a raid on ASIO, and you see there in the cartoon. Um, uh, and, of course, you know, there's no love lost between Lionel Murphy and Gough Whitlam. Um, so uh, how that manifests itself in the dynamics is an interesting part of the story as well. Of course, in ASIO and the Whitlam dismissal, the whole idea of ASIO being on the brink uh, is very much the part of the last few chapters of Volume 2, uh, generated quite a lot of controversy, saw me uh, labelled as, I think it was, a great line. I think somebody said I was a... a, a a stooge uh, uh, of the Whitlam-esque left. I thought that was a classic line. How do you do that? I was impressed. Um, um, but volume three. Now this is, folks. This is this is really coming very much closer to home. This is this is very much uh, has echoes today. Uh, and so there's something about volume three that I think uh, is going to grab more more attention uh, because it's a lot of people are still alive. There's a lot more contentiousness about what happens in this space. Uh, and, but a lot is happening. ASIO is going through a significant reform. The politics of ASIO is significant. We see uh, a number of issues, and we'll go through them briefly. Um, 
and because I, I, I know we're short on time, but I just quickly recap the, the broad outlines of ASIO during the Fraser years, and you see there some of the chapter headings, hope for a new beginning. We're seeing ASIO and drilling with the Royal Commission that's commissioned by Gough Whitlam in 74. It completes in 77. Uh, Woodward makes his mark, and, and the chapters there, I won't dwell on them too much because they're in the book. I just want to flag them to you so that that's all the chapters in the Fraser year bit. So we talk about countering espionage, countering subversion and protective security, the political dimensions of that uh, and, and so on. And then during the Hawke years uh, and the various aspects of that uh, as well, mirroring to a certain extent the way we deal with the Fraser years, but with different issues of course, and then of course the question about moles. Now, just briefly, reform and the politics of ASIO. There's a, lot, a number of characters. Justice Hope really looms large. This guy works on that Royal Commission, Goff Commissions in 74, and then in, in 1983, uh, uh, he deals with the second one, and in between, he deals with the protective security review that comes out of the Hilton Hotel bombing. He lays the way for significant reform that affects the whole intelligence community, and we are the beneficiaries of that today. Uh, that, and and this, it's worth dwelling on, and we can talk about that in the Q&A if you like. But the, the number of reports, it's, it's staggering, the, the scale of this investigation uh, and the reports that come out of it, the number of recommendations is extraordinary. It takes years to actually work through the implementation of this. Malcolm Fraser, who, you know, the, 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 arch, the, the, the arch enemy of Gough Whitlam, comes to office um, and he was not the one who commissioned Justice Hope or select Edward Woodward as the successor director general, but he was surprisingly very supportive of both men. Um, and uh, Sir Edward Woodward, who's selected by Whitlam in 75, he is trusted to carry out the Royal Commission of Intelligence and Security reforms that arise from that, uh, and, he, and Fraser endorses that cho choice. Interestingly enough, he's the first judge to be a director general since Justice Reed in 1949, who's only in there for one year. Now, countering subversion and PMV, I'll hand over to Reese now to talk about that. Seamless transition. Some, some, of that, some of that reform that John spoke about, cultural reform, legislative reform, reform in oversight, can also be seen and is evident in, in how ASIO changes its focus throughout this volume. In a number of chapters we explain that. Uh, and, and in certainly much more detail than we can do here. But from what it had, had looked at as counter-subversion for decades to politically motivated violence. And those definitions come out of the first um, Hope Royal Commission. ASIO really, of course, uh, continued to look at people, and I think appropriate for, for a talk in, in this lecture theatre, continued to look at people like Manning Clark uh, and those files featured in their vault, but really that's not the main focus and we need to keep this in, in, in perspective. Really and increasingly in this counter-subversion, politically motivated violence space, it turned towards revolutionary groups, both on the right, so those who had a backlash against multiculturalism, something that we, we're seeing a little bit of today, but mainly on the left. And the reason for that is the groups on the left, there was bigger numbers and they were better organised. One case that um, uh, we, we deal with in the book um, is, is an example of focusing on, on the Trotskyist groups. And it's the case of uh, Lisa Walter, a, a supposed member of the uh, Socialist uh, Workers' Party. When she was 19, she picked up the phone and called uh, ASIO's Adelaide office and, and started talking to, to them about the organisation. And ASIO went, 
here's an opportunity. They didn't have any uh, employment positions open, but here was a chance to recruit this, this young woman and target her against the Socialist Youth Alliance, someone that ASIO, a group that ASIO was interested in. So they spoke to her, explained the role that they would, would like her to perform, and she accepted that role. And her motive in the ASIO files was assessed as, quote, genuine loyalty mixed with a spirit of adventure. But ASIO believed that she could withstand the pressure of the role, uh, the sort of Stockholm Syndrome um, effect there. At this time, for the first time in ASIO's history, its officers had been directed by the Director General Judge Woodward to not use false names. They had to use their real names when dealing with agents. Now, sometimes that would have occurred, but here was a directive that they had to do that. So this young woman was picked up in her car, picked up in an ASIO officer's car, paid $20 a month for expenses. That was later, uh, later um, increased to $60 a month. And she would use that, cover her travel expenses, buy copies of direct action, um, and then she'd be picked up by her ASIO case officer, debriefed, and she would report on what she was seeing and who she was, who she was meeting. She then travelled from Adelaide to Sydney to attend a May Day march, and on return to Adelaide, and this story again is told in more detail in the book, she organises a meeting with her case officer, the 20th meeting that they, that they have had. Little does the ASIO officer know that she's also um, been turned in this process, and she has uh, told the press, and so here you see in this, in this photograph uh, the journalist going up to the door. So the ASIO officer in the car has a recorder. He's recording their conversation. He's going to use that later to write up his notes. Lisa Walter is also recording it. And so uh, this reporter comes up, talks to the case officer, questions him on what he's doing, what ASIO is doing. Um, he then, she then jumps out of the car, says, I'm not going to do this sort of stuff anymore. Uh, and the driver, and you can see the ASIO officer in, in, the, in the bottom photo there driving off. This later hit the press. Um, and there's some really great quotes in the book, both from the, from the ASIO officer's reporting, uh, from her recordings that she made, and, and from the press story. So her cover had been blown, although she'd blown it herself. The ASIO officer's identity, so not just this, but others that she'd had dealings with had been blown. Their real names appeared in the press. And from this, ASIO tried to learn some lessons. But you'll see in the book that they didn't learn them quick enough and they have a similar case with a young woman against another Trotskyist organisation and, and really quite, uh, quite tragic. Stephen Darcy Ricks, who you can see pictured here, he really, uh, his case really changed how ASIO uh, viewed the Communist Party. It did, did take a while, it wasn't instantaneous. But he applied for a job in the Department of Trade uh, and Resources in November of 1981, had to go for a security clearance, and ASIO knocked back that security clearance on the grounds that he was a member of the Communist Party of Australia. In 1982, Ricks appealed to the Security Appeals Tribunal, set up as a result of the First Hope Royal Commission, who revised the case, found that membership of the Communist Party was not sufficient grounds to withhold a security clearance. And this made ASIO rethink how and, and why it was looking at the Communist Party. And eventually, after about 30 years of having this as one of their main targets, they dropped that, they took their agents out of the party and, and went elsewhere um, and, and focused on PM and uh, politically motivated violence, as I've explained, and also, as John will now tell you, on um, countering the threat of terrorism. Thanks, Rhys. Um, 
Certainly what we see happen is in this period, in the mid-1970s onwards, uh, examples like this Jordanian migrant associated with the Syrian Socialist Nationalist Party, uh, who community leaders were concerned about, particularly given his aggressive tactics, and ASIO identified him as a nasty man who shall not be granted residence in Australia. But ASIO protected sources from court exposure. So this guy went through the courts and this was a very significant moment for ASIO as it's starting to shift its focus from counter-subversion to the prospects of countering terrorism. Remember that in 1972, members of uh, the PLO had been involved in uh, the, the deaths of uh, Israeli uh, uh, athletes in, in Munich, and that had uh, generated considerable concern. But of course, the bigger concern was the Hilton Hotel bombing. In February 1978, the bomb killed two garbage workers and a police officer, wounding another and several bystanders. The Ananda Marga were quickly uh, identified as the principal group believed to be behind the explosion. And Justice Hope, who'd just completed the Hope Royal Commission uh, in 77, here we are in early 78, tasked to conduct a protective security review. Um, and the Protective Security Coordination Centre, which had been established a little while before uh, as a consequence of earlier reform measures, uh, was actively involved in this process. And what we see is interagency counterterrorism coordination really starting to take shape. People realising they actually have to coordinate. The police, ASIO and various bodies have to work together to unravel this piece uh, uh, and, and make sense of what was happening. Um, and we can talk more in the Q&A if you like. Um, a Turkish, the Turkish Consul General in Sydney was assassinated in December 1980 along with his bodyguard by this fellow, Sarik Arayak. Um, uh, sorry, this is the fellow who was assassinated. The, 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 the assassination was claimed by the justice commandos of the Armenian Genocide, uh, who sought revenge for atrocities against Armenians. And the assassination appears to have been conducted by a visiting two-man team, flown in, uh, supported by locals, flown out, and uh, plausible deniability uh, attached to it. This leads to a real concern about migration, about uh, border control, about control, uh, monitoring local groups with uh, extremist tendencies. Krikor Kaverian returns from the United States, a justice commander of the Armenian Genocide Center. Uh, when the customs discover these weapons, uh, he's arrested and prosecuted. The Hakoa cl uh, Club is bombed in December 1982. Groups associated with the cause of Palestinian liberation were the principal suspects that were investigated by ASIO in that. Uh, Hargot Livonian, this Armenian Revolutionary Federation member, was killed instantly when a bomb he was carrying exploded in the basement of the building housing the Turkish consulate in November 1986. And there you have a, a photo of that. So these things are starting to mount, folks. Uh, and ASIO and the federal police and the state police are realising they really do need to work more closely together if they're going to nip these kind of instances in the bud. So we're seeing that shift from counter focus on counter-subversion to much more to counter-terrorism. Now, writers have focused on surveillance conducted on Australian citizens, but I think, like with this cartoon, um, a lot of people are going to be disappointed um, because, you know, the majority of ASIO's efforts were actually on countering espionage. And naturally enough, given that it's Australians writing about Asia primarily, uh, there's an interest in files about Australians. But surprisingly enough, it's not actually ASIO's primary focus. It's elsewhere, and it's on counter espionage. So if you look, if you've read the, the previous two volumes, or if you're going to go off and read them tonight, you'll see <laughs> from, 
the, from the, the 50s through to the mid-70s, the focus of ASIO's counter-espionage efforts, the goal was defection. You have Petrov, 1954, defects. That's, that's the gold standard. But really, in the, in the late 1970s, we see a shift. And I think one of the, the more interesting stories um, untold until now was one of ASIO's first undercover operations. So really until this time, if ASIO wanted to um, get close to someone, they either recruited someone who was already close to that person or they would get someone and try and target them, put them next to them and, and become friends. But in the late 70s ASIO, and this is really reacting to, to approaches that are occurring in other intelligence agencies around the world, decides to cut out the middleman. And so they put in their own offices, not in all cases, undercover. And so they use their professional judgment to see whether a target is um, or can be recruited. So defection, now recruited. So in this case, uh, the target was uh, Andrei Duchkov, a 30-year-old third secretary in the Soviet embassy, embassy on Canberra Avenue here in Canberra. So part of this story ran, ran in yesterday's um, Fin Review. And I think it, it painted quite an unfair picture of the ASIO officer, Jeff Bokoff, um, who was involved. It, it, it sort of it painted him as an inexperienced and drunk. And no, neither of those things are true. Um, he was professional. speaking with too much passion. Uh, he was professional. He'd been in ASIO for eight years. Um, and, and I think what this case shows is he was dedicated to his job. He essentially lived away from his family for an entire year. Um, that's dedication to your job. And he made a huge commitment. And what's less, no one in ASIO had experience in this kind of operation. So I think I just wanted to correct that. I don't know if Jeff's in the audience tonight, but um, and then put that on the record. I think that the, the review... Um, got it wrong. So Duchkov here arrived in January of 1977 and he's considered one of what was called the golden youth, someone destined because of who his parents were for, um, for good jobs in, in the Soviet public service. So ASIO started watching him straight away. They saw that he got into a routine of heavy drinking and, and, then w and walking from his uh, flat in Griffith to, to the embassy. And they started to see he had marital, problem, marital problems and that he was potentially... Um, vulnerable to being recruited. So the operation continued to, to go throughout that year and on the 16th of December 77, Duchkov joined his neighbour who was a boat salesman from Sydney for a drink at the boat salesman's house. They drank a carton of beer, got married, spoke about life in Australia, followed it up with a Christmas party at the boat salesman's house the next night where they drank and did, more, uh, uh, did some dancing. And it was the start of, of, of what uh, Duchkov thought was a very good friendship. Little did he know that it wasn't a boat salesman, it was an ASIO officer undercover who had rented the flat, had a cover story, had brought in a six-metre boat to help with that cover story. Um, and, it, and it worked. And so he was able to develop this friendship, use his professional expertise to assess whether this guy could be recruited. And then recruited to keep working in the embassy and report to ASIO. So the, the operation continued going on. They met pretty frequently, living next door to each other, but the operation wasn't really going anywhere. And eventually Duchkov is moved out of this flat and closer to the Soviet embassy, which made it harder for ASIO to track what he was up to. So eventually, Jeff Bocock bumps into him. Of course, this is based on surveillance. He knows where he's going to be. Bumps into him at the Monica shops. 
uh, has a chat and says, listen, a guy from intelligence came to, to visit me. Um, they're a bit concerned about you. And then that makes it even harder for, to meet up and Duchikov keeps rejecting uh, any approaches to have a meeting. Eventually, ASIO's surveillance team sitting in a van sees Duchkov and he goes and he puts something under a bush in a churchyard in Marnica. They go over, have a look, and it's a grog case. He's got all these half-drunk bottles of sherry. He's going back there in the day having more drinks. <laughs> and ASIO's psychologist, although this should have been pretty apparent from all the drinking they've already done, assesses, this guy is an alcoholic. We're not going to get any good information out of him. Let's drop the case. They have one last go at him. He, he rebuffs it. He actually runs out of the house screaming, I'm not a spy, I'm not a spy. And the operation comes to a close. Bocock moves back to Sydney, actually just to his family 20 minutes away in Canberra. Uh, and that's the end of the operation. Duchkov uh, moved back to Moscow and, and he died from a heart attack three years later. Um, it's a really interesting operation in that A, it cost $100,000. But B, it led to changes in how ASIO ran these kinds of operations in the future, particularly in looking at the welfare of its officers. Now, this guy had been away from his family for a year. Um, and, and being an early and big operation, it teaches them some lessons. And you'll see in the book, and I don't have time to go into it here, but if in Q&A maybe we can read some quotes from the book, there's a huge shift. This is the early part of it, but there's a huge shift in the Hawkeys in how ASIO approaches counter-espionage. It becomes more offensive. Rather than letting people, letting Soviets and, and, and et cetera, into the country if they've got an intelligence background, they start to try and deny visas. Don't let them in in the first place. They can't do any spying if they're not here. And that leads to quite a lot of uh, uh, heated correspondence between the heads of ASIO, Alan Wrigley and John Moton, and their counterparts in um, what is now DFAT. DFAT wanted evidence. ASIO says, we're not in the game of, of evidence, but these guys are spying, we know it. We, can, we can't prove it in a court, but we can prove it in an intelligence sense. Um, and and that's, that's a significant change. There's some photos here, and these are photos from the book. These are the sorts of um, mechanisms, non-human mechanisms, ASIO used for collecting intelligence. You can see here cameras, um, pretty high-tech stuff for the time. Um, a, a listening uh, post uh, for, for a technical operation, um, recorders and um, photocopiers for going into a room, photocopying documents and getting out. And you'll see some of these buildings, this is in Yarralumla, uh, these are some of the, the buildings that ASIO targeted and this is where spying was occurring and these are in our city folks, so um, you'll drive around and you probably go past these buildings every now and then. Clearly the Soviet embassy, the Russian embassy is still there uh, on Canberra Avenue. Um, Vietnamese residents in South Canberra. Um, an old Chinese embassy in Watson, um, near where the picture, driving picture theatre was, um, and a uh, Yugoslav embassy in Red Hill. So one of the most significant counter-espionage operations at this time, and I'll hand over to John, of course, was the Kum Ivanov affair. Thanks, Reese. And uh, it's really interesting, a very interesting character. Valery Ivanov and his family identified as a KGB officer arriving in Australia. Uh, their, ho their home was uh, subject to surveillance. Uh, his home in Curtin was monitored, uh, exposing startling d uh, uh, discussions. This was under warrant. A number of uh, bugs were installed in the house. Uh, and along the way, uh, David Coombe, a, a former National Secretary of the ALP, crosses the path of ASIO's uh, crosshairs, if you like. Uh, the, and microphones recorded conversations 
with David Coombe on the election eve of March 1983, which seemed to indicate that uh, Ivanov is trying to recruit David Coombe. Uh, and that happens, so David, uh, the, the transcript of that is passed to the Director General, Harvey Barnett, a, a couple of days after the election, uh, and it indicates that Coombe is being cultivated uh, and his association with Ivanov generates an early crisis for, the, for Bob Hawke. Uh, Ivanov, uh, Ivanov is eventually expelled, uh, but generates considerable heat uh, inside the organisation. And uh, that, that chapter, that story, is quite controversial. It's been looked at in some of the reporting, but it is probably one of the juiciest chapters. I mean, there's lots of juicy chapters, to be frank. It's, <laughs> it's really a gripping read, but it's a good one. And Harvey Barnett, he's this old school, you know, uh, a spy and counter, espionage and counter-espionage expert. Now he preferred to deal with Bob Hawke because in, while Gareth Evans was the Attorney General, our illustrious Chancellor I might add, um, uh, 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 Gareth has got a bit of a name for being a civil libertarian. He's been pretty critical of ASIO while in opposition. So here he is, you know, he's now the Attorney General. Harvey's not all that comfortable talking to him. So he goes to Bob Hawke who's, who's slightly more hawkish, dare I say. <laughs> um, and of course, well, what we see there is that um, this then starts to unravel because Bob Hawke wants to act quickly and precipitately and, and Barnett's kind of caught flat-footed. He wasn't expecting this. Um, and then that it sort of unravels because Cabinet meets, Young's in the Cabinet, Young was asked to resign after breaching Cabinet confidence regarding Ivanov's expulsion and Hawke declares this was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in politics. But one of the good things that comes out of it is that he commissions Hope once again to conduct another Royal Commission. Uh, now this true proves to be quite traumatic for the organisation, but at the same time quite cathartic. This leads to significant additional reform measures as the Royal Commission on Australia Security Intelligence Agencies, RC Asia, uh, continued through from March 1983 to 1984. Of course, there's a lot of cartoon material here, uh, folk, was the, uh, which thrust ASIO into the public spotlight and the nightly television coverage. Uh, and the event caused great stress for many of those involved and great, great mirth for the rest of us. Um, uh, as you can see, I love that one down here. Could you speak up, you know? Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, and the, the one on the right there, it isn't as if though we're trying, we're, we, uh, we think you're a spy or anything, but you know, effectively, that's what happened. But it's interesting, when you think about what was happening, as that Royal Commission met and it was deliberated on and got a lot of media exposure and captured uh, in part by David Marr's book, The Ivanov Trail, um, one of the things about it is that sensitive source protection often prevented people from learning the full story. Um, as with David Coombe, people and their careers could and did suffer. And Asia was very conscious about the need to protect their sources. Uh, and so it was hard for them to be as transparent as we might have expected uh, in, in those circumstances. Interestingly, Lev Koshlyakov, um, who was one of the KGB uh, officers there uh, at the time, was furious with Ivanov for going too far too soon with Kuhn. Uh, he was in Australia for a number of years. And he was considered one of the most dangerous KGB officers ever posted to Australia. Um, so we see there uh, espionage continues, counter-espionage continues. But in the same time, we're seeing ASIO recognising that it needs to relocate and reform further as a consequence of that second Royal Commission. And here we have Alan Wrigley. He replaces the very soft-spoken and gentlemanly Harvey Barnett. And he's a hard-nosed manager. This guy, 
he is tasked to, you know, he, he was in defence, I used to be in defence, and I, I, you know, he had a reputation in, 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 in defence as a pretty, dare I say, a hard ass, you know, <laughs> uh, right? And well, he, he's tasked with moving ASIO from Melbourne, and nobody wants to move. They recognise that, you know, organisationally, it's the right thing to do, but no one really wants to do it. He's given the job, he makes it happen, and lo and behold, uh, he does approach the task with determination and vigour. Cam uh, Canberra gets ASIO in 1986, uh, and that is, leads to the new era of ASIO. And by and large, ladies and gentlemen, that is a very good thing. Uh, of course, we see then, shortly after that, ASIO is you know, getting a, a new stride and has got visions for the future about going to organise itself, and then, lo and behold, the Berlin Wall falls. What's going on? Um, uh, of course, this then puts, you know, it changes plans dramatically. But it is the point at which we end the story. But before we do that, it's worth reflecting on the whole issue of penetration and the question of finding moles. We know that KGB officers were able to recruit and run agents in Australia for many years, but it only really became clear after the wall fell. So Looking for Moles, the chapter entitled Looking for Moles, follows ASIO's own investigations into persistent allegations by pen of penetration by Soviet moles. This was a hard chapter to write, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Professor Horner, uh, Dr Crawley and myself all had a crack at this chapter. Uh, it was difficult to finesse and get it just right in light of the fact that there were reports written after 1989 which we could read but couldn't cite that informed and gave us the ability to speak authoritatively on this matter, but with a fair amount of the detail pixelated out. Um, and so uh, this uh, was perhaps, uh, as I say, the most difficult chapter to write and perhaps the most significant as well. Um, Garanti Pavlovich Lazovic, the KGB officer in Canberra from 71 to 77, he was awarded a medal for an intelligence recruitment while he was stationed in Australia, a high award given for significant recruitment. Peter Barber was going to get him removed when Gough Whitlam came to offer, but did office, but he didn't want to make a scene like there had been with a Petrov issue. He didn't want to politicise, and in hindsight, he probably should have pressed the matter. Of course, he didn't. We live with the consequence of that. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, this book has got more to tell. We don't have time to do it tonight. You really do need to read the book. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.